if you're not a person who's familiar or comfortable with sharing your faith with others, I would encourage you to begin to, you know, to pray about that evolution in your Christian experience. And, and at the very least, just pray for opportunities to, for people, strangers that may seem to come up to you and just say, hey, uh, I heard you were a Christian. I've had experiences as a believer, and this was before I was a minister, where I simply just because I asked the Lord, uh, Jesus, I'd like to tell somebody about you, but I don't want to be one of those weirdos that walks up to somebody and tells somebody about Jesus uninvited. Or I didn't really want to jeopardize a friendship by having somebody cease speaking to me because I introduced religion into the conversation. I really wanted to be used by God to tell others about Christ. And I think that's such a joyful part of the experience of being a believer. And if that's not a part of your experience as a Christian, the starting point for you would be this campaign we're talking about, the the by name initiative that you're saying, Lord, I'm going to pray for some friends and I pray that you would move miraculously to build their curiosity about what it means to be a believer so that I don't have to be really strange to them and and it will just very naturally be a part of the conversation. That is a prayer that I have to imagine that God would answer and I believe it's a prayer he'll answer because his word says so. That as we seek him, we'll find him, and we seek him with all of our heart. That if we ask, we will receive. And when things are according to his will, and sharing the gospel is about as clear a part of his will as we can conceivably come up with. So if you have the courage to pray for somebody by name, uh, I got to tell you, you got some exciting days ahead of you getting to tell others about Jesus without having that awkward moment where you feel like I've stepped way over the line here. I have this regularly the experience of telling people about Jesus um, because of how I study. Now, any of you who, who know me know that I'm ADD, and probably severely so. And so if I'm in a room all by myself and it's dead quiet, as you know, ironic as it may seem, I cannot keep a thought in my head. I will either fall asleep or I will be so distracted that I can't even begin to think. So I have to go to high-energy environments to get peace and quiet. I know it seems insane. Talk to my doctor about it. All I know is that when I, I have to do my devotional time in restaurants. So I go to a restaurant, and I put in my little headphones and my music, and I study. And that's how I, the only way I can consistently spend time praying and seeking the Lord is to Go to a restaurant, have some breakfast. It's actually an enjoyable part of the experience. And, 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 and be there. And sometimes the stimulation actually helps me focus. You know, it kind of focuses and gets all of my attention where it needs to be. And I will do my sermon preparation oft times there too. Where I will go to a place, and, and this is certainly the case this past week, where I, I sat in a Tommy's for five hours and drink free Diet Cokes one after the next. I sort I pay for the first one, but you just sit there for hours, and they wonder, what are you doing? And if you log enough time as a guy with a Bible and some commentaries on a table in a restaurant, you are inevitably going to get somebody to ask you, what in the world are you doing, particularly if they work there? And this happens to me rather frequently. People will sit down, invite themselves to my table, and I say, don't you know that I'm having a private time with Jesus here at the restaurant. I don't really say that to them, but they they sit down, they plunk themselves down, and we begin to converse, and they'll inevitably ask me what I'm doing, and of course, I've had enough experience sharing my faith where I kind of engage them, I ask lots of questions. One of the things that comes up, and I just want to give you this uh, on, on the front side of your experience of being used by God to tell others about Jesus, 
is what you're going to get if you haven't experienced it already in our culture is you're going to get, this is what I think. Now, that is a telltale sign that you are headed off potentially into some really odd places. This is what I think. Okay, well, this ought to be good. Now, we all have our personal opinions. We all have our views. But what is part and parcel of our culture is a perspective that says, my faith is my faith. Your faith is your faith. In the, there's no way we could ever really know if there's truth out there. So what we all have to do is kind of just cling to the best we can understand about ourselves. In the book of Judges, the Israelites were have said in chapter 17, verse 6, it's one of a number of places in the book of Judges where this is said of the Israelites that because they didn't have any guidance, leadership, they all did what was right in their own eyes. In Proverbs 21.2, it says the same thing about humanity. We, we tend to think that we got it all figured out, but God is the one who ultimately gets to judge whether or not we're anywhere near his truth. When I share my faith with folks, they'll often be offended by what I say. And I say, well, I profess a faith in something that's contained here in the New Testament or the Old Testament. When I ask them what they believe, they're equally as offended when I ask them this question. Based on what? So let's say, I believe, and then just fill in the blank with some elaborate scheme, or it may even sound somewhat orthodox uh, in terms of what their beliefs are. And I'll say, on what basis do you hold those beliefs? And in our day, people look at you like, what? What kind of question is that? Like I need a basis for my beliefs? Like I need some authority to cite This is what I believe. This is what I think. And this is the spirit of the age. It's a spirit that says, I don't have a basis for what I believe. You have no right to judge me or uh, uh, critique what I believe. And yet at the same time, you citing that you have an authoritative source or someplace that you trust is problematic for me. Because what that does is that brings the issue out of the personal and into the objective, where we can say there is some type of truth out there that we can all pursue. An old TV show, The X-Files, used to say the truth is out there. And so that's what we, wa- we wanted to know. You know, are we pursuing truth? I'm a graduate student, as you know, and part of the research in the, in the world of academia is to say, We're after something. And so we have a whole system of checks and balances. Uh, When you submit papers in academia, you put it through a process at the academy and people check and double check and check your sources and critique. And there's a whole system built to see if you're getting anywhere near the truth. Scientific research, as opposed to the kind I do, which is social scientific research, is all based upon the idea that we're looking for things that really exist out there. We're looking for cures for cancer, for AIDS. We're looking for solutions. We're not looking kind of abstractly just for something fun. I mean, they're actually trying to solve problems, and certain cures will actually bring about health and benefit to everybody. And so in the world of research... There is objectively some truth out there that people are spending their lives trying to find. And yet when we get into the personal interactions about Jesus, so often what happens is is people want to appeal to a, how could we know? 
I don't know. You don't know. So what we all got to do is instead of continuing to see if there's truth out there somewhere, is we sort of retreat into this very convenient space that says, I'm just going to believe what I believe, and you're going to believe what you believe, and we're never going to go ahead and step over and offend one another. But the problem is somebody ultimately gets to be right when when the chips are down. I was uh, (laughs) listening to the radio. Some of you know I'm a... I used to be a disc jockey, and so sometimes I'll listen to tele, uh, radio commercials with, with great interest because I used to do that. Come on out to Champion Chevrolet. I mean, that was my thing. You know, that's what I did. All right, and so I was listening to this one uh, radio commercial recently, and the announcer with this incredibly compelling voice said, believe in something bigger than yourself. And I thought, wow, this has got to be the Mormons or somebody with some real money investing in commercials because, you know, evangelicals, they don't invest in television and radio commercials. So, you know, I'm thinking, what is, it, what is it they're compelling me to believe in that's bigger than myself? And I hear the mamas and the papas behind it, California dreaming. And then I realize the guy says, the California State Lottery. And I'm thinking, that's what we're believing in. So they're talking about money here. You know, they're believing in something bigger than themselves. And I, and I just found it, you know, odd that the the track behind them was California dreaming. You know, this is idea that we're going to, we're just going to dream about a better day in the future, whatever that might be. And in this case, it's when you'd get millions of dollars. The, the, the idea again, that we are left to ourselves to figure this out means that one day there is going to come a moment where a decision has to be made about a social issue, a political issue, And ultimately, that decision is going to be bound up with somebody's ideas about what are right and wrong. Al Mohler, who was the president at one time of the Southern Baptist Convention, and now he's the the head of a seminary in the Southwest, he says this, and I think this is worth, you know, listening to. Moral judgment undergirds the entire structure of laws and is necessary for the rational structure of any significant statute. The idea that our laws can stand independent of moral foundation is senseless. We don't think that driving under the influence of alcohol is simply risky in terms of statistic. We believe that it is wrong in terms of explicit moral judgment. Now, I am not making a political sermon this morning. I'm not going to tell you this is what God thinks about this particular issue or that particular issue. But I I do want us to recognize that even in our cultural decision-making about what we're going to make illegal or not illegal, There are moral judgments and value judgments going on. Even if you'd say, this is not a moral judgment, it is because you're saying, I think that drunk driving is wrong. I think it's wrong on every level. Not just because the Bible says drunkenness is wrong. You're taking other people's lives into your hands, but my entire framework for making that assessment, my entire framework for assessing that this is wrong, I would be able to say is connected to my faith and what I believe the scriptures teach. Other folks may not cite that same thing. What they tend to do is say, I'm influenced by what everybody else believes. The majority of people in our country believe this, and so therefore I believe that too. Or somehow or another, I have structured together a set of morals in my life, but there are no permanence to them because they could change at any moment in time. In our text today, we are actually moving into this territory. The questions of authority and autonomy the questions of God's affections for us, the questions of whether or not uh, we can trust the scriptures, 
Suffering for their faith was the general scheme, the general thinking that was behind the Thessalonians and the letter to the Thessalonians. These were people that were under persecution, and our whole series here in Thessalonians is called Persevering Under Persecution. And in verses 14 and 15 of our, of our text, it actually says what they were being persecuted for. And this is one of the benefits of having not only the text, but having a historical document like the book of Acts chapter 17 to tell us what was actually going on. And in verses 14 and 15 of 1 Thessalonians 2, the word says, you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. The idea that the church in the, in the, in the territory that contained Jerusalem, Judea, that that same experience of presenting a Messiah who had to suffer and die for sins and was raised again, that when they started to move east in and through what is now Greece and began to share this message of the gospel, that at each and every place, the particular Jewish setup where they would start their mission, the Jewish synagogue, that group would take great offense, would be very threatened by the existence of this message. And I would say for two things, for two reasons. One would be because there was a, a base of people being taken from their flock, and let's assume they were concerned about them. I would venture to say, based on what I know about human nature, that that was probably secondary to the concern of whether or not uh, we actually, uh, whether or not people um, uh, are leaving and it's affecting my world in some way. JT, can we get the air conditioning turned on a little bit? Thank you, buddy. Uh, one of the things that also factors in is a, an objection to whether or not what, be, what is being said is actually true. So they had a problem with the Old Testament teaching or the Old Testament, the interpretation of the Old Testament teaching that Jesus, the Messiah, actually had to die for sins. Now, recently, there was a, an experience, and I'll share this real quickly, is that there was a church in our network that's doing particularly well in Dallas, Texas, and uh, a lot of the people that are going and attending this church have come from a local, another local church of kind of a megastar. And part of the reason he's started having people leave the church is because he's gotten into some error in his teaching. Or there's something that is a concern. And so he came out very publicly and did not attack the pastor of this other church. But what he attacked was the belief systems. But as you listened, and I listened carefully to what this person was saying, knowing what I know about my own nature, let alone human nature, you could hear in his words that there was a jealousy, there was an envy, there was a sense that my people are leaving. I'm going to mock this person's beliefs because we're bleeding people and money here. And deep down inside, that's why this person, because they were very close theologically, there was a, there was a sense that I'm losing and this person's winning. And what that did was it produced a kind of a faux critique of the theology of this other church. This is often what will happen. People will get threatened, feel like they're losing in some spiritual, you know, battle for people or money. And then they'll take a poke at the church across the street because the people have left to go there. This is, in fact, 
part of what is going on. It is clear, though, from the New Testament that what others thought of the gospel message about Jesus' death and resurrection, this wasn't a contributing factor as to whether or not Paul and his companions were going to continue to proclaim it. And unfortunately, there's a, there's a whole movement of people under the banner of so-called Christianity who are rethinking what we believe because of the negative reaction they're getting from other people. That's driving often their concern about theological belief. They're saying, you know, people aren't receptive to this. People are offended by this thinking. People are offended by this particular teaching. The the highly enlightened culture in which we live finds our scriptures, morality, arcane, and our theology primitive. And so we ought to rethink what we believe. We certainly ought to rethink what we state publicly to be the truth. It is said that the Thessalonian believers, they parroted or they, they actually imitated the believers in other parts of the world who said, no, friends, this is about Jesus He's the Messiah, and you can look to the specific message in Acts chapter 17. The Messiah had to be crucified for sins. The Messiah died and resurrected from the dead. Salvation is found in no one but Christ. This message was true in any culture. And in fact, one of the reasons Paul was being persecuted, one of the reasons the Thessalonians were under such persecution from Jewish folks is because they were saying, that access to God was only for Jews and not for, just gen- not for Gentiles too. So this wasn't a message, this wasn't an ethnocentric message for Jews, quite the contrary. This was a message that's saying, we're going beyond Judea. We're going beyond Jerusalem. We're taking this gospel message of the Messiah's death for the entire world, and that was at the heart of the opposition too. This section of scripture that we're going to dissect in two ways this morning in Thessalonians 2 uh, explains in part why they would continue to be faithful in this message in spite of the negative reception that they were receiving in parts of the culture. And what I will say to you in terms of our own encouragement and edification today as a church is that if we want to stay with this Christian faith thing, in spite of people uh, in our culture, and it's certainly a growing sense that if you believe this kind of stuff, you're you're kind of sort of nutty, uh, that you're going to have to know more than just what you think. You're going to have to have some substance. You're going to have to have a grounding to your faith. There's going to have to have a foundation. You're going to have to actually know what it is you think and believe And you're going to have to have confidence at some level that what you believe is reasonable. Now, our first of two thoughts today is this, and they're related to Paul's assertion that he as an apostle could have made them uncomfortable and demanded things of them, and he does exactly the opposite. Apostolic authority is the ground of our confidence. So we're going to focus on this this declaration of Paul that he was an apostle. I'll read again. Verse 6b, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. They could have been a burden. This was his thought. We could have. We have the right 
to be a burden to you as apostles. You have to understand what the word apostle actually is. It was a relatively common term used to people who were the chief followers of a teacher. So this, Jesus, you know, didn't, you know, in that moment think up that word. And you say, what do you mean Jesus didn't? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, he, he references that he was choosing apostles. We'll read that in just a minute. The apostles were given this authority from God, from Jesus himself, including Paul. We can read his testimony of Jesus making him an apostle to the Gentiles. God had given them this divine authority, but unlike what they were being accused of, they weren't using this authority to kind of pad their wallet, to comfort or feather their nest, so to speak. And this is often what happens in cults or in churches where there's doctrinal error of pretty large substance. The pastors, the leaders will set themselves up pretty nicely and everybody else will chip in to keep that lifestyle a-going. So when you see me with a multi-million dollar house and a fleet of cars, it's time for you to quit giving here at Prism Church. But this is often what happens in cults is that the people are there to serve the leader. And in reality, in the Christian church, it's the other way around. And this plays a substantial role for us, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but it plays a substantial role for us in terms of why we think men are required to be the elders of a church and why we would not let women be elders of our church. It's not because they're not gifted. It's not because they're not able. It's because men are selfish. And men, because of their physical size, will dominate. And what Jesus has called us to do is emulate his character by being a servant. The apostles were called to be servants. And so he said, we could have, because of the authority we have, we could have thrown it around and made you do stuff and served us, but that's not what we did. We treated you with great kindness. In verse 11, it says, We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. This is the basis for their beliefs. They were saying, we have the substance of what we believe about Jesus, the Messiah, is rooted in the apostolic authority of Paul, of the elders in Jerusalem. The Thessalonians were clinging to, the re, to this interpretation of the Old Testament. Yes, you have your interpretation. I have my interpretation. But what the Thessalonians were saying, what we're saying at PRISM, and it's part of a greater network of gospel-centered churches, is our confidence about what the Old Testament says about who Jesus is is completely rooted in the teachings of the apostles. This is why the Nicene Creed, written in 381, and if you grew up in church, whatever denomination it was, you more than likely said this. In speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says he's spoken through the prophets, and then it says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one universal church rooted in the authority that the apostles interpreted the Old Testament correctly. Uh, Milne says this, a church is apostolic as it recognizes in practice the supreme authority of the apostolic scriptures. So the Thessalonians were saying, as Paul said, you know, you accepted this not as the word of men, you accepted this as the word of God. Now in our day, that would be crazy. I mean, if I came to you all, and I hope you'd know enough to know this, and I stood up in front of you and just said, the word of the Lord has come to me. I have something new I'm going to share with you about the truth of God. 
I think, hopefully, you guys would be like, whoa, time to email the Acts 29 network. They've got a loony on their hands. And then, because I would be, because I don't have apostolic authority. I don't have that kind of authority. Nobody does. Now, there is a, a giftedness, I'll say parenthetically, a small a apostolicness that's basically reserved for people who venture out and start things. It could include church planters and missionaries under this type of gifting But when we talk about the large A apostolic authority that we're talking about here in this passage, it's what Paul is saying. When we spoke to you, it was, you took it as the word of God. Now, this isn't the first time that one of the apostles would say that their words were the equivalent of the word of God. The apostle Peter wrote this in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter sees the apostolic authority of the teaching of God's word from Paul as authoritative. The whole notion of an apostolic authority is born in what Jesus did in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, where it says, Jesus went up to the mountainside, and he called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, that they might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. This apostolic authority is central to why we have confidence in the New Testament. And yes, the New International Version and the English Standard Version and the New Living Translation and the Message are all going to interpret certain linguistic twists from the original Greek or from Hebrew differently. But we have in our possession enough manuscript portions from the original languages of both Greek and Hebrew, New and Old Testament, that there is very little question that in history the New Testament is the most one of the it is the most reliable book in terms of if what we have contained in our original text is actually what was written. We have great confidence that whether you believe it or not is completely irrelevant, but we have great confidence as Christians and can have great confidence as people who are seeking truth to know that what is contained in the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles, the historical record of the apostles' recounting of things, the New Testament letters that Paul and Peter and others wrote to churches. This was apostolic authority in action. We have this record, and so when the Bible, if you will, was compiled into what Protestants refer to as the 66 books, all right, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New We did this, uh, and I say we, the royal we, I had nothing to do with it. It happened many, many moons ago. Uh, When when the Christian church did this, it, it collected these things based on this same thinking. Is this apostolic? Is this genuinely in keeping with those who have taught? And this apostolic authority is the ground of our confidence. It is that. Which when people say, why do you believe what you believe? If they turn that around when I ask them, what is the basis or the substance for what you believe? I say, I I believe this because the historical record of the apostles who followed Christ 
says this about the situation. At any point, people are going to have to defer to somebody they think smarter than them. At any point in your experience, anybody in discussing issues of faith or issues of politics inevitably says, I think this is true, and then they take great comfort when somebody really smart affirms that. Have you ever found that to be true? You have a political notion, and then somebody you have a great bit of respect for comes out in favor of that. It almost provides some sense of, oh, good, I'm not the only one, and this person's really smart, and so therefore, because they believe that, I'm not in completely weird territory believing that too. It's not as if I went out and studied the issue at great length. At some point, emotionally, spiritually, we all end up deferring to other people. This is true even of people who say, no, I have my own thoughts. That's just not true. Everybody, when they get right down to it, says, well, I'm going to trust people that I think are reliable, information that I think is reliable. I was listening recently to a discussion, uh, 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 one of the current leaders of a church movement that wants to be attached to Protestant orthodoxy, but in some ways isn't. Uh, This particular leader was having a debate on the radio in England with somebody who would come from our movement. And, and the question at hand was, what did this, this person believe? And the more they pressed this person for what they personally believed, the more evasive that person became. And at a certain point in the discussion, they got frustrated and said, why do you keep asking me to nail down what I believe? I don't know that any of us can know what we believe. That's your interpretation. This is my interpretation. And this is someone who claims to be a Christian leader. They're saying, you know, we live in a relativistic world. Your interpretation may not be right, and so I don't have to answer for a ba- and have a basis for what my interpretation is. And that is true. My interpretation of the Old Testament might be wrong, but that doesn't mean you get to exist in a world, or this person in particular gets to exist in a world where they give no basis for what they believe. Not if they want me to follow what they're saying. There's got to be some grounding and some authority apart from that person. Because if there isn't an objective authority, then the dominating person wins. I have two cars at our house and four drivers. All right? When Carolyn and I want to go on a date, we need a car. So assuming that's the case, that means I have two teenagers, one car. That's a dilemma. And my kids both want the car. Probably unlike your teenagers, my two children love Jesus and immediately break into a Christian mode and go, no, let me serve you by letting you take the car. And then the fight is between the two of them, no, no, you're more important than me. No, you take the car. And then they go, no, 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 I love you. You take the car. No, 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 I love you. Seriously, folks, what happens in my home is there is war over the car. And at some point, they have to have someone who owns the car who is authority in the house, make a decision. So they call Carolyn. And they go, we need a ruling here. Because I can assure you, and I can tell you, based on what I know about my kids, that my son will steamroll my daughter, not to mention that he's almost twice as big as her, twice as heavy as her. So if it's left to their own devices, if somebody with authority doesn't come in and decide, the dominant one wins. And that's a ground for injustice. Everyone has to make an appeal. Even in the 1960s when Dr. Martin Luther King was appealing 
to racial equality in America, he didn't say, this is just what I think. In his great I Have a Dream speech made in front of the image of Abraham Lincoln who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he begins his I Have a Dream speech by actually linguistically referencing, using the same language of four score, so many score, two score, four score. He, he references, he, he, he gives us this image of association with Lincoln. And then even in the body of the I Have a Dream speech, he says, the Constitution of the United States says all men are created equal. And it's time for this nation to live up to its creed. So he even was making an argument of, of something outside of himself, and that was where the moral authority in our nation was contained. Now, I think undergirding most of his thinking about justice is his own faith in God. But even when he took it into the public square, he didn't turn it into a religious issue. He turned it into one of justice based on something substantive outside of himself. And in our case as Christians, in the Thessalonians' case as Christians, if we plan on hanging in there through the tough times when people start loading up on you because they think you're a Christian and you're weird, you better have a source of information that you're confident in. And I can tell you that apostolic authority is the ground of our confidence. Second thing I'll share with you today is this. Apostolic affection is the gospel's confirmation. If apostolic authority is the ground of confidence, the apostolic affection is the gospel's confirmation. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Listen to the descriptions of relationships and the disposition that these leaders, including Paul, had for their fellow Christians. Fatherly love, encouragement, comfort, urging. Their affection, heartfelt and real, serves to confirm the gospel's message. We mentioned before that Jesus himself let alone the apostles that followed. They said, you know, our job is to serve you, not to take our, what we think would be the, the, the normal course of human authority, which would be to lord it over you. Jesus told them in Mark 10, this is how the Gentiles do it with you. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant of all. In verse 7, Paul said, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. In verse 8, it says, we loved you so much because you had become so dear to us. The Thessalonians weren't a project. The Thessalonians weren't a means to an end of some preachers trying to build a legacy or a ministry to make them look good or feel good about themselves. The Thessalonians were people who they dearly loved. And this love, this affection, glorified Jesus. It, and what I mean by that is, pointed to Christ. Our affection for one another is what is to ultimately make us see God, which is why, friend, if you don't connect with people in your church and or other believers in some place in your life, if you're kind of surfing the Christian life all by yourself, you're not going to experience the love of God like you should because we're supposed to experience it through each other. We're supposed to get glimpses of the glory of Jesus through each other. 
One of my professors, R.C. Sproul, wrote a book called The Love of God. He says this, and I quote, To say that love is of God means that love belongs to or is the possession of God. He possesses it as a property of his divine being, as an attribute. It also means that love is ultimately from God. Wherever love is manifested, it points back to its ground, its owner, its source, God himself. Again, this does not mean that all love is God, but it does mean that all genuine love proceeds from God and is rooted in him. For you, brothers, Paul wrote in verse 14, became imitators of God's churches. Part of that was not just echoing their message, but echoing their affection and their love and their care and their concern. Imitating Christ is the call of the Christian. We are to imitate Jesus so others will see his character and be drawn to him. You're not obeying God. You're not living for Jesus so that God will like you more. You're living for Christ publicly, loving people well, caring for people well, being a part of a church that has a mission to care for the community well. These things are all designed that people would actually see the character of Jesus in what we do. We're trying to love him in response to the gospel, and one of the ways we do that is by making him known, both in word and deed. And the fact that the apostle had the right to be a burden but was not is the, is the essence of Christ-likeness. Jesus had the right to judge, and he didn't. He had the right to remain in the comfort of heaven, and he didn't. But as Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being of very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're called to imitate Christ. But in order to do that, guess what? You have to know what Christ looks like. In order for you to know how to imitate somebody, you have to be able to know. And I don't mean know just intellectually. You have to be able to experience the affection that Jesus has for you. If you don't know the affection that Jesus has for you, it is unlikely that you will ever parrot or mirror or imitate that affection well to other people. This is just truth. If, if the gospel isn't real to you and me, if, if God's love for us, if a daily encounter with his, his presence, if that is not what's fueling our lives, if knowing him and enjoying him isn't really where we're deriving our greatest satisfaction, it's unlikely that you and I will ever be able to point that out to somebody else or demonstrate that to somebody else. For this to happen, we have to genuinely be finding our life in Christ. Otherwise, the Christian faith becomes something where we're using God to get what we want. We're using this religious experience to try to obtain something from others or improve our lives in some way instead of it being about the glory of Jesus, a desire to love others so that they can see the wonderful majesty of Jesus and our own souls finding great joy in that same majesty. Scotty Smith recently wrote a book called When God is Not Enough. 
I quote from that, when the glory of the one true living God is no longer our principal passion in life, worship becomes a pragmatic vehicle for fulfilling two basic quests in life, provision and protection. Instead of living for God's glory and looking to him to meet our needs, we exist for our glory and look for God's who will meet our demands. This is the essence of the Christian faith apart from a real encounter with Jesus. And this is what is only going to keep us in the game when the chips are down. A real encounter with Christ, the living Christ. A real confidence in apostolic teaching about who that Christ is. When the pressure was on the Thessalonians, Paul said these are the two things that mattered most. Apostolic authority, the ground of their confidence. They believed what was being taught from the Old Testament through the apostles was scriptural, was truth. They put their faith in that. And then the affection that they got from these people who had great authority, the affection they received, the, the tenderness, the love, was to echo and picture this Jesus who did the same thing, who bent low to be with people like you and me. This is the affection your Savior has for you. It is that which I hope that will spur you and I to love him well and to worship him with all that we have. So as we prepare for communion, let's pray to that end, okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. We pray that today as we take the, your supper that you would um, impart to us again a, a measure of um, greater confidence.